So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to the book of Proverbs once again. Okay, it'll also be projected overhead. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17. And just one more proverb, chapter 18, verse 24. And we'll just start with these two proverbs. This is God's word. 17, verse 17. I'll read it for us. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Chapter 18, verse 24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Okay, God's word for us this morning. Now, did you know that when we enter the kingdom of heaven, we go into paradise, the eternal never changing where righteousness and peace and justice prevail. No more frustration, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more shootings, no more pain. And in that perfect place, did you know that there's not going to be any more brothers and sisters? Some of you, let's be honest, you're really happy about that, aren't you? No more siblings, not even twin siblings. That relationship will dissolve. No more aunts or uncles, no more cousins, and maybe a little bit more painful to home. Even husbands and wives, marriages dissolve. Some of us might be too happy about that as well. But if you're sad about it, that marriages dissolve, husbands and wives, you've got to get about the business of becoming really good friends. Because according to the scriptures, the one relationship that lasts forever, the one relationship for some reason that is valued above all is friendship. It's friendship. Jesus called his disciples friends because he wanted to continue into a relationship with them into forever, into forever. So we've been looking at, from last week into this week, what is a real friend like? What does that look like? What does that smell like? How, do you, how are you supposed to act? Do you value friendship? Are you cultivating it? Are you prioritizing it? This is some of what we're gonna continue to study. Now, just like last week, there were friendship fouls or failures. I'm just going to go over four marks of faithful friends, all straight from the scriptures. Four marks of faithful friends. The first, the first. I like to say, a faithful friend makes you feel free. A really faithful friend makes you feel safe and free. You know you're in the presence of a good friend when you don't have to like filter stuff, you don't have to pretend, you don't have to feel like you have to be somebody else. You can be truly and entirely yourself. You can bear your soul. Your secrets stay secret. There is safety in sharing anything upon your heart. You feel completely accepted and secure. Oh, this is a gift. And when you have a good enough friend whose character and maturity and judgment and you have no doubt about that person's intentions or their affections for you, you can just freely share. You can vomit out everything. They make you feel free. George Eliot once observed, 
Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with the person, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but to pour them out just as they are, chaff and grain together, knowing that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and then with a breath of kindness, blow the rest away. What a gift from heaven. All good and beautiful gifts are from God. And a faithful friend might be the best one of all. Where they keep what is worth keeping, but with judgment and discretion and love and maturity, with the breath of kindness, just blows the rest away. And if you have a friend like that, that you can bear your soul to, and secrets are kept secret, and there's security, and there's safety, and you just feel so free... As that friend listens to you and as a friend really earnestly wants to reply back with something that might be helpful, according to Proverbs chapter 27, verse 9, it reads, the sweetness of a friend comes from earnest counsel. You should go to a trusted, faithful friend who makes you feel free because as they intently listen to you and care for you and obviously pray for you from the heart, you can expect to receive earnest counsel. I think this is the first fair mark of a faithful friend. Here's second, here's second. A faithful friend sticks and stays. A faithful friend sticks and stays. Now I came across this quote by Martin Luther. I had never read it before. I was blown away at how good it is. Martin Luther, that German theologian, the father of the Reformation, described that a true friend is, quote, one who is walking in when everyone else is walking out. Luther, of course, scripturally describes a faithful friend is the one who is walking in when everyone else is walking out. You see, one of the first mentions of friendship occurs in Genesis chapter 38, verse 12. Judah, one of the sons of Israel, loses his wife and in that season of mourning and grief he goes off with the friend that is the first mention of friendship and what it tells us is that a faithful friend stays with you comes along your side walks with you accompanies you is there sticks and stays with you in a season of grief you know so of course Racking up friends on social networks, fine. Getting followers, fine. Contacts are good. Business networking, probably very valuable. But faithful friends are born and they are proven in the roughest of times. Faithful friends are the ones who are there when all else is failing. Proverbs 17, verse 17, which we just read. A friend loves at all times. All times. And a brother is born for adversity. You see, the most faithful of friends that God has brought into my life have many times been with me and been there for me, and this includes my wife, Sunny, and have spoken to me and have showered me with love and a coverage of grace when there were no obvious benefits for them. 
When they knew it would actually hurt them, it would drain them, it would discourage them. I may not even respond in a very appropriate, mature fashion. But a faithful friend comes alongside of you when there's actually nothing to gain, and it's pretty certain there's much more to lose. (laughs) For example, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when he called his group of 12 disciples friends in John chapter 15, He knew with divine assurance that one would betray him by the name of Judas. Among his group of disciples slash friends, one would deny him three times on the night that he needed him desperately the most. And some, if not all, all at one point or another would question his character, his words, his intentions. All would doubt him. All would desert him. All would be less than faithful and perfect to him. And yet Jesus called them friends. And when the faithful one who had faithless friends actually goes to a cross to take upon all our failures and sin and shame, after his death, he resurrected. He rose again. And upon his resurrection, one of the first things that Jesus seeks out to do is to come back to his faithless friends and speak and touch and feed and bless and reassure them, I'm going to stick and stay with you. Jesus back from the dead, which you can argue was a direct result of faithless friends. One of the first things he does is comes back to say and to show I will stick and stay with you. Oh, Proverbs 18, verse 24. A man of many, many companions may come to ruin. So again, it's not about hundreds or thousands of followers or likes. That is really not the measure of how blessed you are. A man or a woman of many, many contacts or colleagues or associates or some kind of associations, that's wonderful. But you can still come to ruin But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So a faithful friend makes you feel free. Second, a faithful friend sticks and stays. And third, I think it just flows logically that if you want to be the kind of faithful friend who sticks and stays, you got to do the third. A faithful friend does not keep a record of wrongs. A faithful friend clears out the record of wrongs. Does not keep it. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 28 and 29. Do not say, I will do to him as he has done to me. I will pay the man back for what he has done. So if you log birthday gifts, if you keep track of what they did for you last Christmas, if you go back and take that gift and actually get a price on it, and you start calculating, well, I'm going to get something around that same price next year for this person. You keep track of they, if they invited you, how many times they initiated. You keep a record of what they have done to you. And if you're the type of person that always calculates and says, well, I'm only going to respond in kind. I'm going to respond in kind. I assure you, you will not really flourish in any friendship. And if you're the type that always talks about rules and laws and past violations and contracts and You actually kind of like lawsuits where you list out all the violations and grievances, perceived or real hurts and offenses in the past. My friend, I'll tell you, that might be very good for business. It might be very good in the courtroom, but it's very, very bad for friendship. 
In any lasting and real friendship, you will need something that the world desperately needs. It's called forgiveness. Forgiveness. A faithful friend learns to not keep a record of wrongs. Because inevitably, in any deep lasting relationship, you will be wounded. You might feel betrayed. You might be misunderstood. You might be misaccused. You might be disappointed. Oh, but Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9 reads, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Oh, a faithful friend, faithful friend. Who here has a faithful friend? I'll tell you, I don't even have to ask you to describe what your most faithful friend is like. I guarantee that faithful friend has been forgiving, forgiving. Or else there's no way they can stick and stay. Now, of course, forgiveness is never easy. It's even harder depending upon the level of offense or pain. But our Lord, our master, and our savior and example taught us to pray, forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven our debtors or sinners or trespasses against us. Jesus commands us to forgive others as we have been forgiven. He not only commands us, he enables us to do that. But this forgiveness does not mean that you feel better about it. Forgiveness does not mean that you never feel really bitter and hurt by it. Forgiveness does not mean that your mind doesn't kind of recoil or go through some kind of stress or trauma thinking about it. Forgiveness does not mean any of those things. Forgiveness does not mean about a mood or feeling that you have or some memories that you still carry. That is really not biblical forgiveness. What forgiveness does mean is that you don't hold it against that person who so sinned or hurt against, hurt you in word, attitude, or deed. And that, my friends, might be the most difficult, bravest, most spiritual, strongest thing you can ever do. Forgiveness does mean that you don't hit back. Forgiveness does mean you turn the other cheek. Forgiveness does mean you don't seek vindication or vengeance or make yourself right. Forgiveness does mean that you don't go through complete withdrawal, some kind of passive-aggressive, hurt this person back treatment or resentment or slander or gossip or you rally and influence other people against that person who so hurt you or of course in the most extreme scenario you take the law into your own hands and I assure you my friend when you do this you seek to forgive someone not hold it against that person in word attitude or deed with a lot of prayer it will hurt you it will hurt you If it hurts you none, there wasn't much to forgive. But it will hurt you, and that's the price tag of forgiveness because that's how it hurt and it cost Jesus to forgive us of our sin. You see, for Jesus to not hold it against me, he took all the curse and all the shame and all that I deserved upon a cross. But only in forgiveness, my friends, 
Not only do you need to do this among closest of friends, but to all insofar as it is possible, it is also because God in his divine wisdom and his spiritual design of how all of our souls are shaped, he tells us over and over and over again, do not take vengeance into your own hands. Do not try to seek your own justice. Do not try to work everything out so that it will make you feel better. God never says that. He says, trust me, I'll take care of it someday. But the reason why you and I ought to forgive, even to the point that it hurts you, is that's the only way it'll set you free from becoming just like the person who so hurt you. Forgiveness is the only way that protects and sets people free from being corrupted and shaped into the very image of the one who may have even so abused you. A faithful friend, a faithful friend makes you feel free. A faithful friend sticks and stays when everyone else is walking out. And a faithful friend, in order to stick and stay, does not keep a record of wrongs. Here's the fourth, here's the last one. A faithful friend changes you for good. A faithful friend's the effects of being around a faithful friend changes you for good. I have, you have, we ought to have, and enjoy, and value, and cultivate friendships with non-believers. Absolutely. Do not be a friend of this world, its systems and values and thoughts. But it never says don't be friends with our neighbors. We ought to have friends with non-believers. But when Christians have friendships with other Christians, it's also called fellowship. When Christians are friends with other Christians, it's called fellowship because fellowship means that it was formed and filled by Jesus. So go figure. Christian friendship, which is also called fellowship, formed and filled by Jesus, the net result of any Christian fellowship or friendship is both people start to become more like Jesus. In Christian fellowship, in discipleship or friendship, both people ought to become more humble. Both people ought to become more resilient. Both people ought to become more forgiving. Both people ought to become more gentle. Both people ought to become better spouses and parents and neighbors and workers. Both people ought to become happier, holier, healthier. A faithful friend, the effect is that it'll change you for good. I think a great example of this is Apostle John. We just completed his gospel. And I do think that Apostle John, who self-designated himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's going to throw that out there. What he's saying is, of all the disciples and friends, I was his favorite. I was the most closest. I was the most faithful. I was the most intimate one. By no means is John or anyone else thinking that John was a perfect friend. But hey, John, you're going to throw that out there? Prove it. Were you the closest and most faithful friend? And if so, you must have been changed the most because the net result or product of a godly friend, God himself and Jesus, must be that you became a little more like Jesus. You know, John is popularly known as writing 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, like he is the Valentine's Day card apostle. He's the one that wrote letters on love. 
He's the one that's popularly known as being a loving man. He describes love in so many beautiful, marvelous ways. But I'll tell you, he was not always like that. You only know of the elegant, polished, matured, sanctified John. You see, there's this thing called progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is what theologians throw around. What that means is, there's a day you become a Christian by turning from yourself and believing in Jesus to love you and save you and lead you for the rest of your life. But the day you become a Christian turns into a day-by-day, bit-by-bit, where you walk with Jesus as a friend. And progressively, you get sanctified. You become more like Jesus inside out. And this will progress all the way until heaven, the day upon which we will be perfected. But all the way until then, we're all works in progress, and so was Apostle John. He was no exception. So we do read in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, that when Jesus first noticed and for a sovereign reason called out John to be his disciple, in verse 17 it says, he didn't just call John, he called his brother named James, and he gave him a nickname. Do you know what the nickname was? It was called Sons of Thunder. Sons of Thunder. Now, you guys know I grew up on WWF, World Wrestling Entertainment. Classy show. It's still popular. And all these people get nicknames. Mr. Wonderful. No, he wasn't that wonderful. They'd all get these nicknames, which kind of characterize their style or their DNA as a wrestler. Sons of Thunder? That just reminds me of a wrestling character. He must have been one of these WWE characters or... There's nothing about that name that sounds to me that he was patient, kind, soft around the edges, not abrasive, self-controlled, or mature. He was called Sons of Thunder when he was a young man. Here's another incident. When they came across a Samaritan village, this is in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus told his disciples, I want you to go ahead to the Samaritan village and prepare it for me because I'm going to go visit Now, Samaritans were people that Jewish people hated, culturally, racially, religiously, all kinds of animosity. And Jesus in particular heard from James and John, the sons of thunder, that when Jesus approached the village, he was rejected, and James and John come back, and this is literally what they tell Jesus. Jesus, Lord, do you want us to bring down fire from heaven to consume that village? This was one angry, vengeful, impulsive, vindictive dude. He's living up to his nickname, Sons of Thunder. And then on this other incident, before the Mount of Transfiguration, right before that, you have an occasion in Mark chapter 10 where young John and James once again, I'll read it for us actually, Mark chapter 10 verse 35. It's got to be one of my favorite incidents with young John. 10 verse 35, here's what it reads. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, poor Zebedee, these are like the devil kids, sons of thunder. James and John came up to him, to Jesus, and said to him, here's what they said. Okay, this is, actually, I'm just gonna read it straight from scripture. Here's what they said. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That was this apostle who wrote the gospel and wrote all about love and 
finished the last book of the Bible on the island of Patmos by the name of Revelation. Teacher, um, you better do for us whatever we ask of you to do. And here's what he and his brother decided. When you get to your everlasting kingdom or heaven or whatever that's about, we think there should be two more thrones, not just one. And there's going to be one to your right and one to your left. And James and John should sit on each, either side. We'll give you the middle one, though. You're welcome. You can take that one. But we're going to have to sit on the right and to the left. And when you read that, and you think about what John was like back then, does that sound just a little bit prideful or pompous to anyone else? Does that sound just a little bit arrogant? Does that sound like later it reads that the other disciples hated him and James, the sons of thunder? You see, here's a historical fact. When Jesus called John, he was in his 20s. And John was far from the John that he was going to become. He was young, he was brash, he was impulsive, he was emotional, he was angry, he was vengeful, he was very prideful, he was very comparative. He said things he shouldn't have said. He did things he shouldn't have done. He was foolish. He was a meathead. He was a typical WWE fan like me. But here's what Jesus does. He comes and meets them in that place, and he sticks and stays with them. And from the age of 20 till about the age of 100, John has a friendship with Jesus for about 80 years. John has a friendship with Jesus for about 80 years. When Jesus was alive in his human flesh and after his crucifixion, in his risen state, ascended state, through his risen spirit, through the Holy Spirit, John was befriended by Jesus for 80 years. And at the end of his life, everyone could tell and see there's a lot more Jesus that's coming through John. He utterly changed him. You see, just to summarize our four points, I think it really boils down to this. Your most faithful friend is the one you turn to and trust most. That's not just scriptural, it's common sense. Functionally speaking, right now, this morning, your most faithful friend, I hope it is your spouse, is the one you turn to and trust most. And for Jesus, that was John. And I'll tell you how I know that crystal clear. Jesus did not have a wife. Jesus did not have kids. Jesus was not married. He was not a father. You don't have to do either ever to live out maximally for the glory of God. In fact, the apostle Paul says it might be better you don't get married and have your own family so that you would be used for the kingdom of God. It is actually advantageous to stay that way so that you would be single-hearted, devoted for kingdom purposes. But of course, it must be lonely, it must be distressing, it must be difficult, it must be tempting. And so it was for Jesus. But Jesus had John. And when he gets up to the cross, and crucifixions, as you know, was wide open and public and humiliating and naked and just utter shame, most people would say that it was actually at eye level. And when Jesus hung up there to take upon the sins of the world, the scriptures tell us that Mother Mary was sitting there watching her son agonizing, wasting away to death. I'm not a mom. But mothers in this room, you can maybe begin to imagine or resonate 
with what Mother Mary must have been going through. Watching your own son hung up on a cross. I don't know all that she was going through. But we do know what Jesus' son was going through. We do know a little bit of what Jesus' son was going through. Because when he looked at Mother Mary, he told her, Mom, this is your new son, John. And he turned to Apostle John. He told him, please take care of my mom. That moment captures everything you ever need to know about friendship. Do you have anybody you can turn to and trust like that in a moment like that? Would anyone else ever turn to you and entrust you in a moment like that? Your most faithful friend is the one you turn to and trust most. And for Jesus, it was John. If this morning you don't have an actual relationship with Jesus as your friend, you don't really know Jesus yet. Let me tell you how you can tell that. You would never say or think that he's your friend. God, yes. Concept, yes. Theory, yes. Religious, yes. Routine, yes. Cathedral, yes. Rules, yes. Culture, yes. Is he your friend? And if you don't know this Jesus like a friend, I, I'll tell you, you will never meet someone better than him. No one more faithful, no one more true. There's no one who will ever make you feel freer. The Son of God came to set you free, free indeed. There's no one who will stick and stay longer. There's no one, no one else who can forgive and have the power to forgive you of all your sins. And there is nobody in the world you will ever meet when it comes down to it who will change you for good because he's the friend that says, when it comes down to my life or yours, if it really is a choice between my life or yours, Jesus will always say, I'll, I'll give up mine first. And you know the same Apostle John who started off like a WWE fan and became an apostle of love? He actually tells us in the book of Revelation, here's how you can become friends with Jesus. Here it is. In the book of Revelation chapter 3 verse 20, here's what it reads. Jesus says, behold, I come to the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice, I will come into that person and I will eat with you. What do you think Jesus is saying? He says, if you hear his voice inviting you, if you hear his voice of saying, invite me in, he says, I'm going to come in and we're going to eat. That's what friends do. That's what friends do. You know, after we hear the word of God, we're going to spend some time of prayer and mourning for Parkland, Florida. We had another horrific event, another school shooting. But there's a report that the football coach, a large man, and students in the aftermath are weeping 
and they're raising up as a hero because he said he literally gave up his body to be a human shield to cover students and he took the bullets instead. And I'll tell you that coach and anyone else who's given up their life, you talk about any ideal, any virtue, any standard, any song about love, and I want you to stack it up all against Jesus. And I assure you, you will never find someone like Jesus who surpasses them all. If you don't know Jesus as your friend, before we move out of this place just in two weeks, I plead with you, respond to the voice, welcome him in, and walk with him over to Hope International University. It'll change your life for good. Now for the rest of us who do know Jesus, oh yeah, he's a faithful friend. Oh, that's, a, that's a pretty good one, Pastor, thanks. Yeah, of course, he's the most faithful, he's the most perfect, he's a superlative friend. Well, can I ask myself and all of you, if you do know Jesus is the most faithful friend, why do we continue to get so frustrated and upset by our BFF, our spouse, our dad or mom, our community group leader, our neighbor, the soccer coach, someone in our lives because they fail to be most faithful? See, what I'm asking is this. Your most faithful friend is the one you turn to and trust most. Your most faithful friend is the one you turn to and trust most. And the needier you are, the angrier you are, the more vengeful you are, the more unhappy you are with all the human friends in your life. My friends, don't you see what that shows you? It just shows you how much more desperately you need the most faithful friend, Christ Jesus himself. And the longer you walk with him, the longer you really know him, the longer you feel his presence, the longer you receive all that he can give and only he can give, bit by bit, day by day, he makes you more like him and you become a faithful friend. He makes you a faithful friend more like him. Oh, the comfort, the inexpressible joy of a friend who can keep what should be kept and with a breath of kindness blow the rest away? Christ Jesus. I know Valentine's Day just passed, but I'll tell you better than any Hallmark card or any movie, Jesus actually came to define the greatest love you'll ever be able to, you'll, you'll ever see. And you know how he defined it? He said, greater love is no one than this. Here it is. Not the greatest showman, but here's the greatest lover. Here it is. How do you know the greatest love in the world? He announced, greater love is no one than this. Then what? A sentimental love? A sing-song love? A sexual love? No, he said, greater love is no one than this. Then a man laid down his life for his friends. A sacrificial love for friends. That's a good relationship goal. That's a good life goal. And Jesus did it. I'm just going to close with three practical remarks. Three practical remarks on faithful friends. Number one, it takes intentional time. We all live busy, hurried, frenetic, stressed lives, but it takes intentional time. Number two, focus on a few. 
Focus on a few. Remember, Jesus himself fulfilled the Great Commission, not by just going wide, having a lot of superficial likes or followers. He went deep. He went deep. Focus on a few. Deep friendship is discipleship in Christ. The deeper you go, broader the impact. Here's number three. Value friendships more than any other gain. Value your friends more than anything else you could ever get. Money, applause, promotion, recognition, possessions, power, title, legacy, awards. And please, do it at a young age. Value and cultivate friends at a young age. Because when you get around middle age, you can't make any more friends ever again. So cranky and irritable and selfish and tired. When you're young, when you're young, your bandwidth is all gone later on. When you're young, value perhaps one of the greatest gifts God has given to us where Jesus himself became a friend for sinners. In a letter of C.S. Lewis to Arthur Greaves, he once observed, wrote, friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly to me it is the happiness of life. If I had to give a piece of advice to a young man or a young woman about a place to live, I think I should say, sacrifice almost everything to live where you can be near to your friends. I know I'm very fortunate in that respect. At your funeral and mine, your wealth, your awards, your applause, your titles, your positions and possessions will be able to say nothing about you. Only friends will. Will Jesus be your friend in heaven who stands up and speaks for you? And that literally will make the difference between Heaven and hell. Will Jesus be the one that stands up in heaven to speak on your behalf and say, I knew you. I lived for you. I died for you. I rose again for you. And you asked me to become your friend. From that point on, I will always set you free. I'll always stick and stay. I'll always forgive. And I'll change you for good. This Jesus cannot love you more, cannot love you less. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will never fail you. He will never not fulfill the deepest longings of your own soul and heart. So come to him, and then we can maybe become more like him.